Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Kelfie Law Firm, and on today's show, we will be taking a comprehensive look at the ever-important topic of valuation, why it's such a key area for firms and regulators, and the role that compliance can play in the process. In our headline section, we review a recent risk alert from the Division of Exams on the new SEC marketing rule. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of Outtakes, where a recent enforcement action and settlement highlights the importance of valuation and having the right policies and procedures in place to help your firm avoid any violative conduct in the future. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, just a few weeks ago, on June 8, 2023, the SEC's Division of Examinations issued a risk alert that identified additional areas of review for examinations pertaining to Rule 2064-1, the marketing rule underneath the Advisors Act. The risk alert started by restating the initial examination areas the SEC had been focused on as published in its risk alert from last September, September 19, 2022, which were as follows. One, policies and procedures. Two, substantiation. Three, performance advertising. And four, books and records. The risk alert then went on to restate the general prohibitions, the SEC staff stating that it reviews whether investment advisors have disseminated advertisements that violate any of the following general prohibitions, including untrue facts or material omissions, substantiation again, whether the advertisements made a material statement of fact that the advisor did not have a reasonable basis for believing it would be able to substantiate upon demand by the SEC. I'll also share anecdotally that we're seeing several examples in this space right now that are looking at this specific issue of substantiation on the marketing and advertising front. Another one of the general prohibitions the Division of Exams highlighted was misleading implications, whether the advertisements include information that would reasonably be likely to cause an untrue or misleading implication or inference to be drawn concerning a material fact relating to the advisor. They talked about the treatment of material risks and limitations, specifically whether the advertisements discuss any potential benefits to clients or investors connected with or resulting from the advisor's services or methods of operation without providing fair and balanced treatment of those associated material risks or of any material risks or limitations. They talked about uh, making sure the investment advice is fair and balanced. They're talking about making sure that the performance results shown are also fair and balanced. And that it can include things whether the advertisements include or exclude performance results or present performance time periods in a manner that is not fair and balanced, and any other uh, information that might otherwise be materially misleading. Some additional areas of review that the risk alert highlighted include whether or not in the, on the issues of testimonials and endorsements, whether disclosures were provided, including clear and prominent disclosure of whether the person giving the testimonial or endorsement, i.e. the promoter, is a client or investor, whether the promoter was compensated in any other material conflicts of interest. They also wanted to focus on whether oversight conditions had been met, such as whether advisors have a reasonable basis for believing that the testimonials or endorsements disseminated comply with the requirements of the marketing rule, whether or not the, the SEC Division of Exams is also looking at whether written agreements have been entered into where required, such as written agreements with promoters, unless the promoters are either applicable affiliates of the advisor and such affiliation is readily apparent or disclosed, or that the promoters receive under $1,000 or less of uh, cash or equivalent 
put in high-yield non-cash comp during the preceding 12 months. And finally, whether any ineligible persons have been compensated for testimonials or endorsements, and if the advisor knew or reasonably should have known that the person was ineligible, including certain bad actors, uh, again, those uh, persons being prohibited from serving as promoters. If the advisor includes advertising that involves third-party ratings, the SEC Division of Examinations noted that they've been looking at uh, reviewing whether the advisor provides or reasonably believes that the third-party rating provides clear and prominent disclosure of the date on which the rating was given and the period of time, peer, uh, the period of time upon which the rating was based, two, the identity of the third party that created and tabulated the rating, and three, if applicable, the compensation had been provided directly or indirectly by the advisor in connection with obtaining or using the third-party rating. Finally, the division of exams noted on third-party ratings that they wanted to review whether questionnaires or surveys used in preparation of a third-party rating had met certain conditions, such as the advisor having a reasonable basis for believing that such questionnaire or survey is structured to make it equally easy for a participant to provide favorable as well as unfavorable responses, and that the questionnaire is not designed or prepared to produce any predetermined result. Finally, the SEC staff included a reminder that Form ADV has been amended and requires investment advisors provide additional information regarding their marketing practices. The SEC staff stressed that the information provided in the form will be reviewed for completeness and accuracy. And again, they continue to emphasize that advisors should reflect on their practices, policies, and procedures to implement any appropriate modifications to their training, supervisory, oversight, and, and relevant compliance programs. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we are really going to be digging into an important topic in the investment management industry proper, and one that continues to garner attention in virtually every facet of the space, whether it's private funds or mutual funds, or just general for registered investment advisor and broker-dealer firms. The topic of valuation is one that is a, an SEC focus for many, many years and continues to be so today. So, to help us really dive into this topic area, we've brought in a couple experts to really help dig into some of the specific parts of it. And even more so, I think what's really important about today's episode that I love so much is that we're going to be leveraging their insights specifically around some case studies and, and things that we can look at where we can say, here are things you probably want to make sure you avoid. <laughs> and so for our compliance officers and legal practitioners that are out there, it'll be great because you're actually going to be able to walk away with some really good takeaways that you can apply directly in, inside your firms. And so joining me today, I have the wonderful Tracy Abbott and the fantastic Ted McCutcheon to uh, talk about uh, not just the issues of valuation, but how we can uh, practically apply some of those lessons inside their firms. And while I could do an intro for them, I think it'd be better if you get to hear from them just a little bit about who they are and um, and uh, and their background. So, Miss Abbott, I will pick on you first, if you would. Uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, so since I'm Abbott, I'm used to being alphabetically first. So thank you for that. And thank you very much for, for having me on the podcast today. I'm honored to be here and honored to, to share my knowledge with uh, the listeners. And I appreciate being asked. So my name is Tracy Abbott. I am the Senior Principal Consultant at ACA Group. And I have been in the compliance industry working for more than 25 years. I know you're not going to believe that because, you know, I'm only 29. So I started when I was really young. But anyway, so uh, my previous background includes um, pretty senior positions at Prudential. I was the chief compliance officer for New York State Common Retirement Fund. I've done ultra high net worth, private equity, real estate, uh, pension funds, um, you know, all kinds of experience in 25 years. And uh, thank you for having me. I look forward to talking about the exciting world of valuation. Thank you very much for joining us today. Tracy, it is wonderful to have you here. We are thrilled uh, uh, that we get to dive into such an important topic and, and get you get to share your insights and expertise there. Um, Mr. McCutcheon, how about you? Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I look forward to, to talking with you guys about valuation and hopefully uh, delivering some some uh, you know useful information and useful takeaways you know uh, through our conversation here today. My background: I, I, I have about 20 years of experience in the securities regulation world. Uh, about uh, half of that was as an enforcement attorney and then trial lawyer with the SEC in their Miami regional office. After that, I, I joined a, a wealth management firm as their general counsel and compliance officer, chief compliance officer, and then have uh, am kind of most currently at Locust Point Capital, where I'm the general counsel and chief compliance officer. Uh, Locust Point Capital is a private fund manager that's basically a private lender to, to uh, I don't want to go into the strategy actually, just I'm in Locust Point Capital. It's a private fund manager located in uh, Miami, Florida and, and in New Jersey. That's great. And certainly in the private fund industry, the ideas behind kind of valuation and it's important in that space, like in a lot of other spaces, mutual fund space, et cetera, is, is so important. So thrilled to have you on the show uh, and, and really looking forward to the conversation today. Thank you both very much for, for being here. You know, as we get started, I think it's always helpful, you know, for both our seasoned uh, professionals and some of our n newer compliance officers to the space to do a little bit of a level set here at the beginning. And so I I'd be interested in, you know, I guess I did, I did pick on Tracy first for the intro. So Ted, sorry, short straw. Um, I'm going to go to you first here as we look to, you know, t talk to us a little bit about, let let's do a high level intro about valuation. Yeah, sure. So, what is it that we're actually we're, we're really talking about today, and why is it, and, and kind of why is it so important? Well, it, it arguably it's it's kind of the most important thing that runs through uh, an advisor's business. It's you know it's the old Willie Sutton um, uh, uh, phrase. You know, someone asked him, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Was his answer? And really, valuation it's about the money and advising to some extent it's about the money. How how well does an advisor do preserving capital and and producing returns on capital and uh, Evaluation of the assets that the advisor is is managing, be they 
you know, common stocks, blue, you know, blue chip stocks, uh, whether it's real estate, whether it's crypto, whatever the asset, you know, the the the, the worth of the advisor to some extent um, and their success as an advisor is measured in dollars and cents. And the kind of yardstick for that measurement is valuation and the valuation process at the advisor. So to get a little more specific, the improper valuation or valuation uh, impacts directly the calculation of fees, the, the what investors pay for the services. It, 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 uh, it Valuation impacts uh, performance advertising and reporting, which is a huge selling point for advisors. You know, valuation impacts the, the fund's uh, share sale price. It, it, it can, you know, misvaluation or valuation problems. Uh, as you know, we'll kind of explore a little bit when we start talking about a few of the cases that we we're, we're going to present uh, later in the in today can result in um, you know private or regulatory liability for fraud, negligence, breach of fiduciary duty, and it can impact careers and 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 reputations and uh, and and businesses. You know, there's just a whole it, the, the valuation really ramifies throughout. The, the money management business. And it, it, in part, it's because what something's worth becomes the crux of a variety of kind of conflicts of interest between the advisor and their clients or investors. There's an incentive for advisors uh, to inflate asset prices in client portfolios. The more the client's assets are worth, the more money the advisor's going to make. Uh, advisors with more assets under management and better returns attract more clients. Uh, anyway, I'd say that's a couple of good examples right there of, uh, of the, the, the types of conflicts that arise, the kind of centrality of those conflicts to the advisor-client-investor relationship. And, and, you know, I think that's testament to uh, how important asset valuation is to asset management. Yeah. No, that, that's great. Tracy, any Yeah. Issues? So just to add on to what, what Ted said, if you are in the industry, I mean, the first thing is what kind of assets do your I mean, the first thing you need to look at is what kind of assets does your firm uh, trade in, right? So is it level one assets, which are just stocks and bonds? Is it level two assets, which are difficult to evaluate, but there are still pricing services or are they level three assets, which are entirely, you know, illiquid and very difficult to process. So I think, you know, from a risk-based approach, it's really important to dig right in to first, what is your firm's business and what does this topic mean to you as a first a firm and what policies and procedures might you need? And and as a chief compliance officer, what kind of oversight and what kind of risk-based approach are you going to take to monitoring and, and supervising valuation? That's great. No, I mean, I think both of you have really done a nice job there of framing what are some of the key issues involved. And I do find it interesting, and it relates to points in both of your responses, which is that Valuation is this thing that is so critical. I mean, it, it is absolutely vital to kind of the, the broader relationship between advisors and their clients. And yet, 
there's a conflict there, right? That is like inherent in the fact that generally speaking, not all the time, based on how different advisors charge fees and other stuff like that, but generally speaking, there's this conflict that like the higher certain things are valued than like the more money you're going to make inherently. And that's good in some respects, because it has then alignment of interests, right? That, that the advisor makes more money, the more that those investments go up, the more the, you know, supposedly thinking about it in the way that like the better the services they're providing for that client and acting in their best interest and doing all those things that are necessary. And at the same time, right, as you described, those different levels of assets uh, based on the types of investment strategies that the firm employs um, and how those things are valued can can really raise some um, pretty uh, material conflicts between advisors and their investors or clients. Okay, well, how does this issue crop up? Right. I mean, we've talked about at a high level some of the different ways it will we've kind of helped frame the issue, but maybe a question for you, um, Tracy. I'll start with you this time. Generally speaking, you know, what are some best practices that you've seen at firms in this space? Yeah. So I, I've been at a number of different firms. Some are you know, mostly dealing in publicly traded securities and that valuation program was, you know, much easier to manage because the service providers are common and, you know, they're highly supervised. And, you know, I just want to point out that I'm not an accountant. I don't think Ted or you are accountants. I do have an MBA, so I'm, I'm closer than the JDs on this call, but it's a, it's very much an accounting standard that we have to, to live by. So, you know, knowing, understanding, you know, what your firm is trading in and, and all of that is, is so important. So, you know, one of the things when you're a new compliance officer or just joining a firm, or even if you're an existing in a firm is, you know what your trading practices are. And I think the first thing you need to understand is who are the service providers that are providing that pricing to you for the assets that you have in your portfolios. Um, and are they reliable? Are they verifiable? You know, all of that. And then also, what is your relationship between compliance and finance and in the audit process of, you know, verifying the valuation? I mean, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, testing and controls later, but, you know, at a very early stage, like these are things that you want to understand about the valuation at your particular firm so that you can tailor your policies and procedures to the assets that you have. No, that's great. Ted, anything anything to add to that? Yeah. So Tracy's kind of hit on on this fundamental concept of fair value in 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 the valuation space. And fair value is really the touchstone for pricing. And it 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 grows out or it's it, the way it, it shows up and is is uh part of the advisory landscape uh is through this accounting standards codification 820 regarding fair value measurements and disclosures. And so that's the kind of the the 10 commandments with respect to, you know, identifying based on the particular assets that your firm is advising on how those uh, assets should be priced. 
And there are the, these three categories that Tracy alluded to, these three levels. And um, they're basically uh, separated based on the different assets, uh, typical liquidity profile. So at level one, you have very liquid assets. Typically, valuations for level one assets are based on exchange quotations, listed market prices. There isn't a significant uh, degree of judgment that's required for level one assets. This is things like, you know, uh, stock uh, stock uh, traded funds, uh, exchange traded um, equities. At level two, they're somewhat less liquid assets. They're traded, uh, but it's less active markets. There's less volume. Certain types of fixed income securities that aren't like, you know, uh, uh, the, the the debt of large corporations that are very liquid and very um, uh, trade in very high volumes. The the valuation of these kind of more it's still exchange traded or regularly traded. They could be over the counter as well. Valuations for those types of assets are going to be based on things like broker dealer quotations or independent third party pricing services. The kind of uh, the, 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 the least liquid level um, of assets is this level three. And, and that's where you just make up the prices, right? Whatever you think it should be, right, Ted? Right, Patrick? Level three is made up. Depending on what kind of shop you're in, I I, I, I can't really comment further than that. But no, you're. I just, I just. (laughs) That's never okay, people. That's never okay. To value level three, it's tricky. No, no, your your joke is based on on a lot of kind of common sense because level three is really where a lot of problems. Experience. Are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to some extent, because that's where you know that's where there's the most room for discretion, and there are not these kind of independent inputs and you know, market kind of, you know, external objective inputs into the valuation of the pricing. And there's room for, for, you know, mispricing and for discretion. And, you know, when you have, when you combine that kind of room for discretion with the incentives and the conflicts and the financial kind of interests um, involved and the amount of money involved in asset management, that's where a lot of problems um, stem from. So, that's this kind of fair value concept, which is central to to valuation. Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, I appreciate those thoughts and insights. Although it it leads me to another question, which would be, you know, if you're thinking about firms that do it well. <laughs> and by the way, just to make sure to close the loop on Tracy's joke from earlier, uh, don't don't just make the numbers out of thin air for the level three. <laughs> For those, no, never, never. <laughs> for those folks out there, but no, it, it was a good. I mean, I appreciate her uh, uh, providing that levity because it does bring up. I mean, kind of an important point in that there likely are then if you know if making it up out of thin air is obviously what you don't want to do, then there must be again some firms that are doing it really well, and so I guess like. What are a couple things that really good if you're if you're practicing really good valuation compliance, uh, Tracy, what are a couple things that you're likely doing as a result of that? 
Yeah. So, you, I mean, especially for those really hard to evaluate um, situations, there has to be data from multiple sources to justify the valuation. And it's it's really important to make sure that your policies and procedures are tailored to that. And I know we're going to get into a lot of cases later, but you know, there was one very recent, wasn't even a published SEC case where a firm was targeted or you know given a sanction because their policies and procedures weren't specific enough but it's really sort of a fine line between making sure your your policies and procedures are general general enough to allow for the subjectiveness in the valuation that you may need for some of the level 3 assets and i'm talking about I mean, even real estate falls into that category, you know, and, um, you know, things like that, very illiquid assets where you need to get more than one, if you can, pricing source and, and valuation for an asset before you can do that. And making sure that, that that's all documented in your policies and procedures is absolutely critical, even though, you know, I just said, like, sometimes if your policies and procedures are too specific, you're a little bit limited. Um, so it's, 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 it's very difficult to sort of juggle. It's a, it's, it really is a balancing act, uh, especially with some of those really level three assets and, and illiquidity, illiquidity, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. Ted, any, any additional kind of insights on you know, a couple, if you're practicing really good valuation compliance, what are a couple of things you're uh, using or doing really well inside your firm? Yeah, building on what Tracy um, Tracy just said, you know, I think there's really, there's the kind of substance part and there's the procedure part of, uh, you know, good valuation compliance. I, I think of them as the kind of twin pillars of good valuation compliance. So on the substance side, you know, you're using your, your, you're using uh, in valuing according to independent and reliable pricing sources. You have clarity around what those sources are in the, it, it, for assets classes that are less liquid. You you know you're 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 using models that um, where the the assumptions and the variables and the methodology is clearly laid out in advance as prescribed. And then that kind of leads us right into the procedure. So you you have you know a well a well designed evaluation program that has well drafted policies and procedures that incorporate uh, you know checks and balances that are mindful of the kinds of conflicts that can arise. Um, in the valuation process and the incentives, and and then you you also bake into those policies and procedures, you know, periodic testing and monitoring for compliance with those policies and procedures in in particular instances of pricing at the firm. That's actually a perfect. I mean, you just touched on something there at the end. And one, thank you for that context, because I, I again, I think that's really helpful, just as uh, being able to help folks and our listeners digest what are a couple of things that they can probably do right away, right in the substance and procedure part of how they are approaching valuation. But you just touched on like compliance testing and other stuff like that. And that's a perfect segue to talk about 
how does the role of compliance fit into valuation? I mean, look, as Tracy said earlier, you know, n n none of us here are accountants and no one ever wants or to confuse me for an accountant, the, uh, <laughs> the, the math skills you know, it, it was English and law, right, in undergrad and then post post grad. So the the numbers game left me a, lo a long time ago. But but I guess you know. So for those folks that may not be uh, numbers inclined, like myself, but do certainly uh, focus in their uh, kind of practice areas or in their just general careers on compliance, how do they fit into valuation and? You know, maybe Ted, I'll continue to pick on you because you were just going and then Tracy would love to hear your thoughts as well. But how would you say the role of compliance fits in evaluation and what should and kind of shouldn't be included in the CCO's purview there? Sure. So a couple of things, a couple of thoughts. One, um, you know, what are the expectations that the regulators have? What have they said? You know, we can get some indications through writings that the SEC uh, issues. You know, one suggestion is in there's a there's a risk alert from October of 2021. This is the you know observations from examination on registered investment companies and. Basically, these risk alerts, if you're not particularly familiar with them, you know, they, 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 they pick a topic and the SEC gives a little bit more guidance than maybe just the bare kind of, you know, statute or, or applicable rule. Um, they'll give a little bit more color from kind of their, their travels around different advisory firms and note particular issues that are common across a number of firms. So, and and just by way of uh, or a footnote to that is valuation appears in pretty much every single one of these risk alerts that you'll see in the field right. on the private fund side or on the registered investment company side. It's a kind of a perennial issue, just like because it's really a, you know it generates a lot of conflict. So like the, like conflicts of interest at advisors, uh, valuation is a perennial uh, topic that 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 the SEC and their examiners and their enforcement staff are consistently focused on. So what does the SEC say about the role of compliance and valuation in this risk alert from October of 2021? One, they, the expectation is the maintenance of an adequate compliance program, including processes and controls. They mentioned diligence of pricing vendors, and then the other bullet begins with maintaining appropriate policies, procedures, and or controls for valuation of portfolio securities, including provisions that address potential conflicts and issues. So, you know, I think it's as important as what's there, which is policies and procedures and kind of programmatic level, you know, uh, practice that addresses particular key issues like conflicts of interest, you know, what don't they say? They, they, you know, compliance officers are not pricing experts, like Tracy was saying. You know, the compliance is focused more, I think, on the way the way firms are valuing assets, not on specific pricing determination. So compliance is advising the firm on designing, following a sound compliant process for valuation, you know, these kind of the substance and procedure, you know, providing for good governance, providing for checks and balances, clearly outlining sourcing of pricing, and generally looking to mitigate the conflicts that arise and can arise from the valuation process. 
And compliance is assessing the adequacy and effectiveness of valuation policy through review and testing. The point isn't that pricing, the price that's reached by the firm isn't important. It is. It's crucially important, like we were talking about. The point is that compliance is not the person at the firm, the function at the firm that's deciding on that price. They're, 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 oh, they're... And, and... I'm sorry, Tracy, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, which which makes testing and oversight more difficult because we, you know, we're not experts in pricing. So as a compliance person, you know, it's like, how do I know this is the best price? So, you know, as a chief compliance officer, I have sat in on valuation meetings and observed the process. You know, some of the things that I personally do to test and monitor is I look at, you know, specific, uh, very significant changes in valuation. I monitor and do due diligence on the actual service providers. I have good relationships with finance and, um, you know, also, you know, pay attention to the audited financial statements for our private funds which the actual accountants who, you know, know, understand this and all of that, like we, you know, we have to place a certain amount of trust in them that they are, you know, also, you know, monitoring that. But I pay particular attention to the, any comments that they have on valuation. I may ask them questions about, you know, their oversight. And, and, you know, so these are just some of the things that I personally have done to, to, you know, validate and, and sort of, you know, support my oversight of evaluation. Yeah, no, that that's great. And look, I think at the end of the day, too, a lot of this is, you know, for those assets and securities and other stuff that, that are going to be uh, level one, right? And that oftentimes are going to have a strike price or something like that. Like those are a little bit pretty, I mean, th those are pretty straightforward. When you get into the level two and even the level three, a lot of it can be too determined by what you have disclosed like to your investors about how you're going to value certain things over a certain period of time and then making sure that you know if if you know one of the biggest ways that you can make sure to stay on the right side of the fence in advisor land right is is to say what you do and then do what you say and and if you do say say what you do and you disclose that to clients and then you do execute and follow through on um, doing just that, then, you know, you're going to be in a, in a pretty good spot. You know, I, I guess for some of our less seasoned, uh, compliance officers, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, but, but Tracy, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts that, you know, that, that area of testing, right. Seems like a really area that is perfect for some of those folks that may not have as much experience in the space, but w would there be any other kind of best practices or other items to consider that you would want to point out for those compliance officers that are relatively new and maybe wanting to learn about valuation or see how they can make an impact in that, in that area? Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, especially if your firm um, deals in level two or level three assets, I sort of, you know, outlined some of those, you know, making sure that you understand who your serv service provider is and are they reputable and reliable, you know, so, and also like if there are, I sometimes will do just some simple Excel spreadsheets and look at the change in valuation to see like things that have changed significantly. And then I may go back to the investment team and say, look, like I'm testing valuation and this asset talk to me about how this was valued and things like that. And, you know, it has to make sense. I mean, 
again, we're not, you know, expected to be accountants or experts in these fields, but we are expected to sort of monitor for red flags and anomaly and, and anomalies. So that is sort of your you know, best test is to maybe look for some of those significant changes and just question them, um, you know, as if you were, you know, brand new and say, well, this asset went up, you know, 20%, 20%, like nothing else in the portfolio did. Does this make sense? Like what happened here? So even just, like I said, identifying some of those red flags and questioning them and documenting responses. And again, doing adequate due diligence on your service providers and making sure that you're especially for those ones that, that you may question or you think someone else may question, like, do you understand where they came up with that valuation? So it's really important to understand where the, where those numbers are coming from and that they're just not being pulled out of thin air. I mean, I, I, I joke about that, but you know, like just making sure that that doesn't happen. It's such a good point. Tracy, it's actually such a good point. I mean, it it reminds me of the idea, similar to what a lot of firms, right? Uh, just recently, the SEC pushed out a risk alert on the, the new marketing rule and some of the things that it's finding. And one of the key things that I noticed that I've been having conversations with, with a lot of other firms in the space is substantiate the stuff that you say. You've got to be able to substantiate from either the performance side or even just the claims that you're making in your marketing and advertising. It's the same thing here. I mean, you just hit on it. Like if you have an anomaly, if you have a huge valuation increase or something else that kind of or decrease, I guess we should say, too. right. Or decrease. Right. I mean, you know, it's less of a conflict if it's a decrease, but yes. Right. No, it's such a, it's such a smart point because when you have those kinds of anomalies, when they come up, the SEC, you can expect that when you get examined, they're going to ask you about it. And if they ask you about it, then there can be a very viable, credible reason for why the, the valuation of the uh, asset went down as much as it did, but you've got to be able to substantiate that. And I, and I think that's that's critically important. And being able to spot that from a compliance perspective is a really, really uh, uh, smart, again, kind of frame of reference to, to go from. You know, it does remind me, though, and actually, that's probably another perfect segue. Look, valuation is a little bit art and it's a little bit well initially it's science level one and then it gets into a little bit more art into the level two and level three right so we got a blend going on here that means that there can be interpretations you got to have reasonable ways to back that up we just talked about how we substantiate that but i guess i say all of that to set it up to say this isn't something that can be done perfectly all the time and there can be issues that arise Right. So let's talk about some of those issues and, and what can go wrong here, you know, if compliance isn't involved, right? Or firms aren't paying attention to this topic area and and that maybe can help provide our listeners with some really good practical takeaways of ways to avoid having issues in this area down the road. And so, you know, maybe T Ted, I'll I'll kick it over to you. Talk to me about the importance of data in in this space. And obviously, look, we know that just given how some assets are going to be priced, it's it's the only thing that you'll need. But I guess just generally speaking, talk to me about how data can impact certain issues when it comes to valuation. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think a good kind of phrase or theme for, for this area is garbage in, garbage out. So if you, if the data and kind of sources or pedigree of the inputs for the valuation are of poor quality, guess what? The price that comes out of that is going to be of poor quality too, probably, or may tend to be. So you'll see, uh, you know, advisors and, and frankly, pricing vendors as well recently have gotten into trouble for for having uh, pricing that was based on you know small quantities or low quality data and to your point earlier about say what you do do what you say their their policies often talked about data or annual pricing processes that you know weren't based on data that was of this kind of that had issues and so that's where data becomes really important. Um, you know, you have this, you have this case against pricing service. They didn't have the SEC action against them found that they didn't have adequate policies and procedures to address the reliability of the broker quotes um, that they were delivering to their 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 clients and on which uh you know their advisor clients base their you know net asset values in their vehicles and the the issue was that you know oftentimes uh there was just you know a single price and the price may have been an old price, a stale price, um, but there was no indication, you know, when when the price of that kind of quality was communicated to the clients that it that's the data that it was based on, and that that led to to problems. Yeah, no, that that's great, uh, kind of framing that that issue. Tracy, any additional thoughts on? on that specific item or any of the other uh, uh any of the other kind of issues or considerations that yeah uh, i mean just just you know those cases are also good examples where it doesn't matter if it's level one level two or level three assets can move from between levels depending on their circumstance and you know making sure that you have the right vendor for the right and the right oversight and the right level of people looking at these the, the having the oversight on it is is really important. So, you know, it, you, you can get into trouble. I, you know, I, we, we sort of say that this is mainly, you know, level two, level three assets, but it couldn't really be anything if you're not making sure that the data that you get in is reasonable and reliable. Mm -hmm. Can firms experience issues to where, uh, or, or have you heard of firms experiencing issues Depending on the types of personnel that they have looking at the issues, like does, you know, making sure essentially, and this gets to a little bit of what you both have talked about too, that like making sure as a firm, you're providing adequate resources to support the valuation processes within your firm, but where say, you know, you, you have employees that are looking at this, but they may not, you know, have a, a, a requisite knowledge set to really be able to, uh, to be able to identify meaningful valuation, you know, to, to identify meaningful valuations. Is that another area where you see issues occurring? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple flavors of of this problem. I think uh, on the the there's this kind of inexperienced or un, un kind of unqualified uh, person handling the valuations. Either they they haven't been uh, adequately trained, uh, they don't have the requisite technical knowledge to to either kind of execute the the, the 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 processes that are outlined in the firm's policies and procedures correctly. I think an example of that, there was a case against Fifth Street Management some years ago where they they ran into trouble with the, the enforcement division for you know having inexperienced employees responsible for, for building valuation models. I think the other flavor of this kind of wrong wrong person for the job is where you have you have somebody with with a, a really strong vested interest like a portfolio manager in charge of you know determining the pricing and this is a little bit of a mashup between kind of governance failing and not having adequate checks and balances in, in your process um, and and kind of, kind of low quality data because if you take something like this case against uh, the, the CEO, CIO of a firm, the company used a pricing service, but the the way that the, the pricing service was set up, they got the, 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 the CIO uh, controlled all the inputs. And so the, the firm traded a lot of derivatives and there were findings that adjusted the variables and inputs in the pricing services model service to inflate prices. And, um, so you have this this kind of wrong person for the job, inadequate policies, and you know lack of third party controls, and all kind of coming together in a in a in, in a in, in the perfect storm for valuation. Yeah. yeah. No, we don't we don't necessarily want the uh, the the fox guarding the hen house, right? In a couple of situations. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. a great way to put it. That's 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 exactly right, Tracy. You know. I'll turn to you. You know, do you see other areas in the valuation space specifically where th there can be some manipulation that goes on, or or even you know some ability for folks to unduly influence how certain securities are valued, and and what what are some other kind of pitfalls there? Yeah, so it's really an under, important to understand all of the assets that are in the portfolio and how they're being valued. So that's why I think it's important to sit in on valuation committee meetings, even though yawn. I mean, it's not always the most exciting stuff, just like this <laughs> podcast, I hope. We're making it a little bit more entertaining, but I wasn't all excited to do a podcast on valuation for my first podcast ever because it's that's a little bit of a dry making, topic. That's, but that's you really not do. The final cut. Yeah, no. <laughs> the, the sex, it's one of the it's one of the most thrilling of all compliance topics. Everybody knows that. We covered that ground already. Yeah, we we solved this hard already. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's making it into the podcast i'm telling you and um so uh, but but it's really it's very important to understand all of the assets in the portfolio and how they're being valued i think you know we we looked at another case as we were preparing for this for this uh podcast where you know like we you talked about it was very similar to the to the previous case where they were um manipulating the prices of the derivatives in the portfolio 
Um, and so, you know, but they're, they're, you know, if you don't understand that that's in the portfolio and how those are also being calculated and all of that and independently verified, you know, it, you have to, as a chief compliance officer, have the level of expertise and understanding to be able to at least look at the process and make sure that you're comfortable with how everything is being valued to make sure that, you know, you can vouch for, for your firm in, in that right. respect. Yeah. It's going to put you as the CCO in the best position possible. Like we talked about earlier to be able to substantiate how you came up with that number and being involved in that valuation committee, if your firm has one or being involved in that process, or at least having access, right? Being able to supervise what folks are doing in that area is going to be critically important, just like anything else. The more that you can really see how, you know, the, the, how the sausage is being made, you know, specifically yeah. this is going to be really, really important. A common theme that, that, that runs through these different cases is that at the firms that ran into trouble with valuation, um, there either wasn't adequate oversight, there wasn't adequate review by compliance or by in instances where there was a board by the board, the, the, the kind of recipe and, and you know, the, the kind of machinations and, 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 you know, committee structure and review and testing, it's not super exciting very often, but it's, it's the nuts and bolts of compliance and kind of, you know, rule of law, rule of rule virtues um, that distinguish a successful kind of long-term uh, compliance program, long-termist compliance program from, uh, a, you know, a more shorter term kind of risk, risky, um, short-termist approach to, uh, to compliance and to valuation in this particularly important area of valuation. So, you know, I think that it, you know, what are the kind of features that identify this this more kind of robust species of, of advisor firm? You know, it's 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 a firm that has a valuation committee. It's a firm that allocates responsibility explicitly between a board, a valuation committee, a third party administrator, and the advisor. It's a, a firm that has established processes for methodology, for, um, you know, pricing particular assets, for in terms of sourcing, uh, pricing, and uh, kind of a hierarchy of various sources that are permitted. It's a firm that, where the methodology includes kind of tolerances plus and minus a certain uh, variance um, from the sources or from uh, when, when there's a difference between the sources and has a means to escalate and resolve pricing disputes or issues. It's also one that is focused on the kind of, that sounds super kind of processy, but it's also one that where compliance people and the business people involved are really focused on the kind of conflicts that can arise where the fox is guarding the hen house it, you know does the portfolio manager have 
you know, inputs into the pricing. I mean, a lot of these cases that, that you'll see where firms run into trouble, you know, they may have a policy that says the securities, the bonds should be priced according to X and, and you know, prices sourced from the market. But what actually happened was um, the manager kind of took the, the, the pricing sheet and either kind of marked it up directly with internal, you know, valuation or asked the accounting department to put different prices on it. And, you know, that, that type of um, lack of process and lack of controls is, is, is what leads to these kind of issues. Right. Right. No, that's, that's very, very helpful context. I think to provide our our listeners the, those compliance officers out there that are going to have to try to tackle what what is what what can be a challenging subject matter area, especially because not all of those compliance officers are going to be accounting experts, right? As we've articulated, you know, previously in the show. You know, I guess one this has been super super helpful kind of information to really help tackle a um, a, a tough subject matter area. Maybe uh, Tracy, Ted w- would love to hear just in kind of your closing thoughts on the issues of, of valuation. You know, what what's some parting advice that, that you would give our listeners for those folks that are going to have to, that, well, they may be listening to this podcast right now, maybe thinking, oh man, you know what? I probably need to go back into my firm and maybe adjust a few things or, or you know, update my my policies and procedures or just some other kind of practical takeaways for for them to be thinking about yeah so the first thing i would say is um it's critical to understand you know your firm's trading processes and how valuation occurs um so you know that would be number one and then number two would be making sure that you have adequate policies and procedures in place to you know i mean reasonably designed to prevent and attack misappropriate behavior in this area. And it, it, it's also important to understand, and I'm not sure that we talked about this all, but sometimes how valuation can influence other areas within the firm. Like I know we looked at a case on cross-trading. So is your cross-trading policy, you know, where you're actually, you know, doing a cross-trade, it's it's even more important to make sure that the valuation is fairly, you know, represented and that you're doing that. So just make Make sure that you understand your firm's business and how valuations are happening and where they're happening. And uh, again, you know, test for anomalies would be, you know, my biggest advice. Yeah, just to build on that, you know, testing things like uh, doing lookbacks, doing uh, sales of comparable assets uh, that were contemporaneous with sales that that you know where they were matching the pricing um, of the contemporaneous sales of similar assets with your firm's um, you know sales at that time. There were a couple more a couple of points that, that I, I had just to kind of close. Um, you know one is you know this is a perennial issue. Um, the SEC is super focused on it. It's super important to the business. It ramifies in a bunch of different areas, just like Tracy was saying. You know, if valuation and poor valuation can impact your audit, it can uh, it can cause you to have to restate. And then it could also because the audit uh, or the valuations didn't comport with GAAP. It blows your audit, and then you you can't use that if you're a private fund. Comply with the custody rule if you're a a, a, a private pool vehicle. So 
there, it spins out a whole bunch of different ways. And so it just makes a whole lot of sense to, to have reasonably designed um, practices like Tracy was saying. You know, I think another takeaway is uh, in the registered investment company space, it's a lot more prescriptive um, valuation. There's 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 specific standards, uh, board review. So if you can act like a, if you're a private fund, um, you can uh, look to the registered investment company rules for guidance on building out your kind of governance and controls. Um, that that can be a good source. Um, and, you know, just be clear about what your role is and isn't as a compliance officer in the, in the valuation process. And if you're asked to pick a price, the bell should go off uh, in your head. And that, that just raise, that should raise questions about, um, you know, the nature of the practice, pricing practices of the firm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And really great points from from both of you to kind of close out. It, it reminds me that you know compliance uh, should not be the pricing expert <laughs> at the firm, and 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 compliance should not be focusing on on actually engaging you know to uh to to the at the firm or with a fund to find the price but we can help supervise that activity right and make sure that we have the right processes built for that activity and focusing on the way that our firms are valuing those assets that that's exactly where we want compliance to be focused it's it's assessing the adequacy and effectiveness of the valuation policies at the firm. That that's where folks can really make the biggest impact, specifically related to compliance. Ted, Tracy, this has been an awesome, awesome discussion. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. As we like to say on the show quite a bit, um, no good deed goes unpunished here. So I'm done asking you questions about valuation, but we don't let any of our guests get away with just talking about compliance stuff. So one question for you both before I let you get out of here is, what's one thing that you're really, really looking forward to getting to do here as we approach uh, the, the warm summer months? Ted, why don't we start with you? Well, you know, I I live in Miami, Florida, so I in the warm summer months I look to get out of Miami to enjoy the summer. <laughs> you may be going inside more than outside, right? Yeah, this is probably yeah. I look for a mountain. I look for the nearest mountain and head to it. So I'm looking forward to getting getting into some cooler climbs and and doing a little hiking and biking uh, to unwind. Cool. Very cool. How about you, Tracy? No, I'm I'm at the point in my life where it's just all about quality time with my granddaughters. So I have four now, ages five, four, three, and two. And uh, we just found out that there's a fifth grandchild on the way. So I'm all about... Thank you. We're all about just hanging with them and we rearranged our our living situation so that we can be closer to all of them. And so just spending time with them and family and just enjoying enjoying this new phase of our of our lives. That is awesome and super excited for you and your family. What a fantastic way to get to enjoy summer. Although I, as a, a person who's got some young kiddos themselves, I'm jealous uh, or a bit envious of Ted's summer plans because I'd love to be on top of a mountain <laughs> hiking up in cooler times. But thank you both again so, so much. 
for coming on today's show. It's been a pleasure having you to talk about this really important topic. Thank you very much. And looking forward to having you back on the show here at some point down the road. Thanks so much. I love listening to the show. It's a super podcast. The final part of today's show features another segment of outtakes. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, if compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at entertaining, maybe sometimes humorous, and often unsettling activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to avoid a similar compliance breakdown inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and and outside your compliance program. In today's session of outtakes, we review a recent enforcement action against an investment advisor for issues related to valuation. According to a Law 360 article by Katrina Pereira, the SEC recently settled with a New York-based investment advisor firm for $275,000 in penalties to resolve claims that the firm failed to adopt and implement necessary written policies and procedures related to valuation of fund portfolio investments. According to the order issued at the end of May, the advisor agreed to pay a $275,000 civil penalty on a joint and several basis, consented to a cease and desist order, and agreed to implement certain measures, such as the retention of an independent compliance consultant without necessarily admitting or denying any of the SEC's allegations. The firm in question provided advisory services to private funds that primarily invested in equity and debt of private companies or assets for which, quote, there is frequently no readily available market pricing information and for which no significant observable inputs are available, according to the order. Again, very relevant given today's show, focusing on the topic of valuation and some of the important lessons that Ted and Tracy recently talked about. According to the order, the valuation of client assets is a, quote, critically important area for investment advisors since the, fa the failure to value assets properly could lead to the incorrect calculation of fees and inaccurate performance reporting, among other things. The SEC alleges that the firm here failed to adopt and implement necessary written compliance policies and procedures related to valuation since 2016. The order went on to say that the advisor charges management fees to its private funds quarterly based on the net asset value of the applicable share class. However, the SEC claimed that since 2016, the advisor's written policies and procedures were not designed to prevent violations of the Advisors Act, including the nature of the investment mandates of the funds managed by the firm, and therefore only providing minimal guidance in their policies and procedures about how to value level three investments in accordance with GAAP and other standards outlined in the funds offering documents which were given or available to investors. The SEC asserted that as a result of this, the firm violated the Advisors Act through this conduct. And according to the order, the firm was on notice that its valuation procedures, quote, may have been insufficient, end quote, because the auditors provided 
uh, qualified audit opinions due to the auditor's inability to obtain sufficient appropriate evidence supporting the fair value of a material investment. The auditor for the firm's 2016 financial statements allegedly later withdrew its audit opinion. After the firm restated its 2016 financial statements writing down the value of that investment by approximately $32.9 million, the advisor's new auditor then issued an unqualified opinion on the 2016 financial statements. The firm then made retroactive adjustments to management fees accrued between 2016 and 2019 to help account for the reduction to NAV. On account of the alleged conduct, the SEC asserted that the firm again violated Section 2064 and 2647 of the Advisors Act. The advisor agreed to retain an independent compliance consultant and to cease and desist from future violations and to pay, of course, the, the money penalty of $275,000. Separately, and kind of in a, in a unique way that you don't necessarily normally see in these situations, Situations, the advisor itself noted in a separate announcement that the SEC's order did not find any violations specifically related to the actual valuation of assets or valuation practices and processes, false statements or misrepresentations of fraud. In fact, the CEO of the company said that it looks forward to working with the outside compliance consultant to identify opportunities to add and enhance to its written policies and procedures to then reflect what it believes is already a robust valuation process. So, this can be helpful for many of our listeners out there, the compliance officers and legal practitioners that might be looking for a little extra ammunition the next time someone at your firm indicates that uh, because there was no actual violation here, right? Like you got to the right landing spot and therefore there's nothing to worry about. You can tell them that just you can tell them that the SEC cares just about uh, just as much about process as it does about the ultimate landing spot because just because we didn't break the rules this time doesn't doesn't mean that you're in the clear, and if you don't have good policies and procedures in place to prevent violations from occurring, the SEC may still say that you violated certain provisions underneath the Advisors Act. And further, following up on the insights from our wonderful guests, Ted and Tracy, earlier in the show, the topic of valuation is clearly in focus for the regulators. And firms would do well to make sure they have excellent policies and procedures in place when it comes to mitigating the risks involved in this challenging area of the firm's advisory operations. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Tracy Abbott and Ted McCutcheon, for coming on today's show to share their invaluable feedback and recommendations on the topic of valuation. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast, or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 